that visual right there captures the last week before Jesus' death and resurrection intensely. Back in graduate school some years ago at Wheaton College Grad School, took a class on, the, on Mark, on the Gospel of Mark that we're going to be speaking from. And they had us draw out the book of Mark incident by incident and use uh, symbols for like for teaching or for miracles or something like that and and symbols for persecution or uh, people being angry with Jesus and by the time you get and I use lightning I use purple lightning for that and by the time we got to the end of the book got got to this chapter there's just lightning all over the page because Jesus is going into the lion's den if you will so let's role play for just a moment just pretend that I'm one of the 12 disciples. I'm a guy from Galilee. I'm a country guy, right? Big city, Jerusalem, that's not my turf. And the last 10 days has been crazy. I have come, if this is a map of Israel, this is the Mediterranean Sea, the Jordan River Valley is here, Sea of Galilee. You come down and you get to this town called Jericho, 800 feet below sea level, and you take a 45 and start climbing 2,500 feet up to Jerusalem, which is south, but it's up. Okay, so I've been with Jesus. I've come down. We get to Jericho. Crazy stuff happens in Jericho. Blind guy named Bartimaeus, Jesus heals him. You've got a little short guy up a tree and out on a limb named Zacchaeus. Jesus calls him down, changes the whole town. The young moms are bringing babies to him, and, and, and all this stuff happened. And then we went to this little town called Bethany. So let's say now I'm in Jerusalem. The east side of Jerusalem is this huge temple. Right? We'll talk more about that. And I'm looking east toward this other mountain or hill, about 2,700 feet. It's called the Mount of Olives. Sits about 200 feet higher in elevation than where I'm standing. But I'm just thinking about where we stayed the night before, which was in Bethany. Bethany is a town on the far side of the mountain. And we're staying with friends. And every day, Jesus is coming into town. On Sunday, we came into the town. We went and got the donkey for him, and he rode into town, and the place went crazy. They're cheering Hosanna. We think, this is so cool. The Messiah's coming. What I don't know is that in five days, they'll be chanting, crucify, crucify, crucify. Same crowd, right? But anyway, Sunday we did that. Yesterday, Monday, we came into town, and uh, he went into the outer courts because the temple is this little place, but it's called these outer courts, Court of the Gentiles. And there they've got money changers and guys trying to rip people off, and he, he chases them out. This is not baby Jesus, meek and mild. He grabs some cords and starts turning tables over, and coins are going everywhere, and pigeons are doing whatever pigeons do, and, you know, and you've got bleating sheep, and it's just crazy in there. And then we came back today, and we've been in the temple, and, and so we're coming out. It's Tuesday. A couple days, it'll be Passover, and we're coming out. Toward the end of Pastor Derry's message last week, he talked about this coming out of the temple part where Jesus sees a widow woman in the area where they give offerings. They had big areas where you could put monies in. And I want to start there. This is Mark, the 12th chapter. In verse 41, Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a few cents, probably in our terms less than a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had 
to live on. Now that's where chapter 12 ends. Now you understand that when it was written originally, you didn't have chapters and verses, right? For hundreds of years, not till the 13th century did they have chapter divisions in the New Testament. It took them 300 years more to put verses in. They weren't really quick about that. They put verses in so we could find our place. So there's no shift from chapter 12 to chapter 13. So it reads like this, all she had to live on. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. We go from two tiny coins to massive stones like that. And for me, that's an interesting thing because he just commented on this spectacular place. And we'll talk about that in a moment. I'd, I'd say what the disciple said, because I, I, I talk about, we'll be driving down the road. I said, Ruth, isn't that view across the fields toward the right? Isn't that beautiful? Look at that. There's long speak. She'll say, yes, you said that a thousand. I said, yeah, but it's really nice. And I say, and, and look, there's an eagle. Well, it's a buzzard, but it, it's just, you know, I just, I point stuff out. So I'm like the guy that came out and said, whoa, look at, this, this is unbelievable. Because I'm a, I'm a farmer fisherman guy from Galilee. And this is sort of overwhelming. So I'd say what he did. And Jesus replied this way. Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. And I, I was just making an observation. I, you know. And Jesus says this thing. So let's just talk about this temple for a moment. Herod, a king, a puppet king to Rome, built this temple. He was Jewish sort of by adoption, but he built this temple and it took decades, 46 years. Some say the temple part only took maybe a year and a half, but then the outer courts and the porticos and they have huge walls going down to the Kidron Valley with massive stones. Some of you have been to Israel, you've been to the Wailing Wall, that's part of the system. But if I were to, if those stones down at the bottom down there, if I were to pace it off, it would be something like this. It'd be one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, about that. That's the length of one of the stones. You go this way about six paces, 18 feet wide, and twice as tall as I am. That's just one stone. And there were scores of those stones in that. It was this spectacular thing. It was an architectural wonder of the ancient world. It was the, the limestone stones and the, the marble facing. It was just, it was white. They had gold leaf. They had silver. They had sometimes jewels. They, the, the doors facing east were, some say, 50 feet high, burnished brass. They would polish them. If you were on the Mount of Olives when the sun came up behind you and you were looking at the city, it would like, be like a jewel sitting there, just this spectacular place. Ascending staircases to all the various areas. The next verses, when Jesus talks about it, he's, they've come out, they've gone down through the Kidron Valley, they're back on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus is about to give his disciples a lesson in architecture. Point one on the back of your bulletins is God is the great architect. Architect by definition. God is the great architect. Architect by definition means chief builder. Not just a drawer, not just a sketcher. He's a planner, a conceiver. An architect understands the purposes of what's to be built, design development, infrastructure, traffic flow, 
the soils. Is this good soil to build on? Which way does the wind blow literally? Which way does it blow? How do we get the sun in the winter? All those kinds of orientations an architect would, would call into, into place. So, and, and God is the great architect from, from the first sentence in Genesis, let there be light, where he's laying the foundation for the universe. Light is one of the basic elements and so forth in, in our life. If you don't have life, you're dead. You're gone. If you don't have light. So from, from the garden, if you will, in Genesis 1, to the city at the end of the book of Revelation, he's the architect of all of that. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear that, that God is the great architect. And you hear it even from this guy 2,000 years before Jesus, a guy named Abram or Avram in the Hebrew. Avram was chosen as the father of the faithful. The Hebrew people would come out of him. Abraham, in Hebrews 11, this is how it reads, 11.8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went even though he did not know where he was going. I really identify with that last part of the sentence. It didn't, half the time, I don't know where I'm going. But, it, but Abraham was over here in an area today which would be like Baghdad, Iraq. And he came up across the Fertile Crescent down to what is now Palestine or Jerusalem. By faith, he, Abraham, made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations. Here comes the architecture part. City with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And he wasn't talking about the earthly city of Jerusalem. He was talking about that city, the one at the end of the book. He's talking about that place, if you will. Architects are big picture people. They have the whole of it in mind. Some years ago, when I was pastoring this little college, a friend who was the head of the design group at the University of Illinois Architecture School, he taught master students, and he had studied under this fellow named Frank Lloyd Wright, who was a pretty famous guy. He, um, he said that he would come and do a new campus plan for us, and he'd do it free. I love the free part, you know. And so he came out. Jim Miller was his name, wonderful guy. Came out, and he stayed with us, and he'd get up every morning, and he would go walk our little campus. It was some 50-some acres. And he would walk it early in the morning. And you didn't have uh, phones with cameras, so he had a Polaroid. He'd take Polaroid pictures early in the morning, middle of the day into the evening, almost till it was dark. When I walked into his office in Urbana, Illinois, a year later, I walked into his office and I was standing in the middle of Bethany College campus because the whole campus was pictured on the walls. It was sort of this panoramic thing. That, and I said, Jim, why do you get up so early and walk around the campus and do that? He said, Dick, when you walk the land, pretty soon it starts talking to you and says, put a building here. Make the walkways go there. They are big picture people. That's how that works. So God, who is the great architect, point two, has a beginning and an end in mind. He has a beginning and an end in mind. He doesn't just start off, I don't think, at least when I read the text, he doesn't just start off and say, well, let's give this a shot and see how it works. We'll just do this. And I think he has a, he conceptually, and tactically and strategically, he knows where he wants to go. When I read this, it tells me God is building two things. He's building a people and he's building a place. Building a people 
and the place. This whole book is about people and geography, people and places, ups and downs, sideways, good, bad, ugly. It's got it all in there. And when I think about that, he is building his kingdom in you and in me, individually and together. He's building his thing in what we think is our space, but we're really his space if we've given ourselves to him. He has an end in mind, and he sees it before it's complete. So Jim Miller designed an early childhood center for us at the, at the campus. It was in a beautiful spot, redwood trees, coast of California, a stucco building, red tiled roof, and it was cool for the day, 1980. It was high tech. Upstairs were college classrooms for early childhood students, and we had videos and all kinds of things. Now it would be passe, but then it was really state of the art, right? And downstairs we had the classrooms for the kids, for the preschoolers. And they had little desks, and you go in the bathroom, and there were little tiny toilets and little tiny sinks. And, and so Jim comes, Jim, and there's a playground outside and all that. And so Jim comes for the dedication day pick him up at the airport we walk in we're walking through the facility and and I'm saying isn't that the coolest look at look at that and this and this and he's saying yeah it's good good yeah, and we're walking through and I'm ramped up and he's just giving me you know it's good yeah and I'd say Jim aren't you excited he said yeah I really am you know just <laughs> and it dawned on me that he'd been there before he conceived it he had lived in it before he walked into it that day. And I was just walking into it that day. Here is the, the architect who's already been there. So Jesus is about to explain to the disciples in Mark 13 what it means every stone thrown down. So they've come out of the temple, gone down through the Kidron Valley. They're sitting on the Mount of Olives looking at the temple. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple... Peter, James, John, and Andrew, these are the closer guys, asked him privately, tell us, when, key question, when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they're all about to be fulfilled? So here we go. Prophecy. Prophecy is at, at best an interesting study, whether it's Old or New Testament, because prophecy, for me at least, is a, is a mishmash of stuff. When I was a kid growing up in church, I grew up in a theological environment back in the 50s where they were doing all kinds of prophetic things and guys would come in and do charts about here's the timeline and this is happening here and this is those people. And, and, but nothing could be proved and the guys they named weren't. And so, you know, I sort of in my mind backed away from that. But the fact is that that theologians and historians, because he goes on here to talk about the destruction of Jerusalem, this terrible time period in, in Mark 13. They ask the question, why the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple 30-some years later? That temple they're looking at was destroyed by the Romans some years later. And the question they have oftentimes, theologians and historians, is was it God's judgment or was it just that Jews revolted against the Romans or what? Jesus, in this passage, just keeps telling his followers what to do. He says, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, you're going to see this, but this is how you respond to that. His key point, I think, is that actions have consequences, okay? Like, if the Jews revolt against the Romans, they're going to wipe them out. That's, that's going to be a consequence. In science, we know this is true. In science, we say every action has an equal and opposite reaction. In life... In relationship, that's not true usually. Usually it's every action has not an equal 
It has an opposite reaction, but it's not equal. It's usually that plus a little. Jesus says, if you forgive, it will come back to you, pressed down, shaken together, running over, poured into your lap. You know, like if you do good things, you'll get a little more back. If you're sarcastic as all get out, you'll get that plus a little, okay? So actions have consequences. There's a city that uses a slogan. It goes like this. What happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I hear that and I say, really? I don't think so. Let's go back to the architect's original design. Let's go back to the garden for a moment. I have a friend named John who was in government for many years, and he talks about this this way. He said, there are two voices in the Garden of Eden. One is saying, because here Adam and Eve, they get the garden, right? You know the story. They get the garden. God says, you can have the whole garden except the one tree. Stay away from the one tree. And, of course, I identify with this because you put a fence around something. And I, I say, well, that must be good. Why don't we climb that fence? Why don't we do that? And so that's what happened, right? He said, there are two voices in the garden. One is saying, do whatever you want. It doesn't make a difference. No consequence. Just, just do it. The other voice is saying, be very careful what you do because every action has a consequence. And when I, when I think about that, this is what he says. And it's in a slide now, point three. An action with no consequence doesn't make us free. It makes us meaningless. An action that has no consequence doesn't, it, you know, people say, I'm free. I can do whatever I want because I have the free. It doesn't make you free. It makes you meaningless if there's no consequence to what you do. Actions are consequential. So the disciples are about to hear from Jesus that, that following him has consequences. And he wants them to be ready. Listen to how it reads. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you because I'm going away. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. There were lots of false messiahs in the day, several dozen, and they all ended up being false because they died and they didn't come back, okay? When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. We've had ongoing wars for the last 2,000 years, and they, had, they were under an oppressor in Jerusalem at the time, in the Roman government, and you look at the Middle East now, and it's a tinderbox. You look at other places, not just the Middle East, you look all over. And of course, their world was that. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginning of birth pains. Then he goes on and says, you must be on your guard. This is his instruction to them. Here's what you need to be doing. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged in the synagogues. So here's your reward for hanging with me for three years. I'm going to leave. They're going to arrest you and beat you to a bloody pulp. Okay. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. How does that happen? Well, maybe that's the day of Pentecost, which is just a few weeks down the road, when all the nations are coming to town and hear the good news. Maybe. There may be other parts to it. And this is what he says. Whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. I'm getting up here to speak. I worry a lot beforehand about what to say. You want me to think about what to say before I stand up here. But he said, don't worry about that. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, 
but the Holy Spirit. He's saying, whatever happens, the Holy Spirit will be with you and in you, whatever that circumstance. This is not a direct corollary to that, but it's an illustration of something like that. About um, back the first week in February, I went to the National Prayer Breakfast. This is an event that's held for the last 60-some years. It's to pray for the first family of the United States, and it's sponsored by members of the House and the Senate, first Thursday of every February. And the structure is this. You have a Wednesday night dinner, Thursday morning breakfast, the president comes, and then a lunch, then a dinner. And, and again, the point is to pray for the first family and for other leaders around the world. They called me this year because I've been involved with them for a bunch of years and said, would you be the closer on the, on the dinner on that Thursday night? I said, what do you mean? They said, well, we'll give you eight minutes and we don't want this to be heavy because we've had a whole 36 hours of heavy. So why don't you just say something funny and tell a story? I say, those are the two things I like to do. Say something funny and tell a story. What I didn't know was who I was going to be following. And the person I was following was a, was a woman lovely woman who uh, grew up on a ranch near Holman Air Force Base in New Mexico and used to sit out by her barn and watch Air Force jets do dog fights, you know, mock aerial fights. And she said, that's what I want to do. I want to be one of those. She tried to get in the Air Force. They wouldn't have her. Ended up going to the Navy and being one of the first female F-18 fighter pilots flying off of aircraft carriers along with her husband, Dean. Her name was Tammy Jo Schultz. Left the Navy went to work for Southwest Airlines, became a captain, and last April 17th in the morning, she took off on flight 1380 out of LaGuardia uh, Airport on her way to Dallas and had just reached the cruising altitude of 32,000 feet and they heard a, a muffled explosion. The word came up that an engine had gone out and that the impeller had, one of the impellers had broken, come through a window, depressurized the cabin, sucked a woman halfway out the window. I don't know if you remember that or not. They, she died. They got her back in. But, but Tammy Jo Schultz is telling the story. She said, as soon as we go through our checklist, find out where we are, we realize that our avionics are gone on that side. The only direction we can turn is left. And, and we talked to Philadelphia. They're talking us down. We're trying to come down and land at the airport. And she said, um, I get on the horn and I call our attendants. We have wonderful flight attendants. And she said, the roar in the cabin is huge. The masks have dropped down, of course. And if you roll down the windows of a car at 70 miles an hour, it's a tremendous roar. If you lose cabin pressure because you've broken a window at 30,000 feet, it's a roar that's created by 500 mile an hour winds coming into that. And so she said, go down the aisle and shout this. We will not crash. We have a destination. We will not crash. We have a destination. Because in a moment of crisis, you need to be able to speak hope. You need to have the words. When I read the cockpit recording, you can go online and read this, of what she said. As she's talking to the tower in Philadelphia, under her breath at one point, she says, Heavenly Father, and as she touches down 20 minutes later with the only, only the loss of one life out of 149, and that was tragic in itself. When she touched down, you can hear her say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. When you're in a crisis moment, when you're standing before judges, he says to his disciples, the Holy Spirit will give you words. Fourth thing is read the signs and know the times. Prophecy is a little dicey thing because Jesus uh, has two things going here. He's got, he's got the, 
the destruction of Jerusalem. We have read the signs and know the times. He has the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD. And he has the second coming of Jesus, all in the same thing. Ruth and I are ocean people. We were brought up in California, so we tended to the ocean side of things. But I like the mountains, and I'm getting to like the mountains more. And I like looking at the Rockies. And it's so different looking at the Rockies in the morning and in the late afternoon. Because when you look at the Rockies in the morning, at least from where we are, it's sort of like a rocky. You know, it's just there, right? But in the late afternoon, the way the light hits it accentuates that it's not just one thing, that it's a range of mountains. And you can see the peaks, the different, it really is purple mountain majesties. And you see these differences. And prophecy is a bit like that. You look at it and you say 70 AD, second coming of Jesus, one thing. But in fact, when the light hits it a different way, you see that it's a very different, that there's distance between those two. So in 70 AD, what Jesus talked about happened. The Romans laid siege to Jerusalem killed tens of thousands of people, blood running in the streets. They burned the temple to the ground. The orders from Titus the general and Caesar were, do not burn it. Guys went crazy, burned it, and the gold melted, and the silver melted, and ran down between the stones, and they started somehow getting the stones one off of the other till not one stone stood on another. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. He will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, not even Jesus knows, only the Father. And then he says it again, be on guard, be alert. All through this text in 13, he's been saying, pay attention, stay awake. Be alert. Don't, be, don't get fooled by false messiahs. Don't get fooled by political systems. Don't get fooled by anyone came saying, I can fix everything. Don't get fooled by economic structures that say, this is the answer to your life. Be aware that God is in control. He is the grand architect. He, he knows the end from the beginning. He's the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Point five. I'm closing, almost done. Jesus is coming again. Be vigilant. You see, I, I thought the story of Jesus was he came and it was a virgin birth and then he lived his life and then he died and, and it was crucified and rose again. I thought that was the story. That's almost the story. The other part of the story is that he's coming back. This is not General Douglas MacArthur coming back to the Philippines in World War II. This is not Arnold Schwarzenegger saying, I'm back. It's none of that. Okay. There will be a point in time, we don't know when, when he returns in power and glory. 1970, South Lounge of the University of Illinois Student Union. It'd be like Lori's Student Center over here. A lawyer was in town. 1970 in the spring was a crazy time. 5,000 National Guard troops on campus. The whole civil rights thing and Vietnam thing was hot. They had arrested 2,000 students at the University of Illinois, tramped them in campus town a few nights before, and they kept them under the football stadium while they processed them. So it was just electric. And this lawyer came to town from the East Coast who was a social activist, very strong. And the, the room is full of 200 kids, I'm saying, 200 young people, a lot of revolutionaries, Marxists, Maoists, all kinds of people. 
and he's, he's railing against the institutions of democratic government. He's saying the military-industrial complex. And, and he says, I have in my pocket some pills that are keeping me alive, barely. I have a near-fatal, or I have a fatal disease that's going to get me in the end. And I talk to the companies, and they can make pills that will actually cure me, but they don't make them because they cost too much money. So I will die the most ignominious death of all, the, the death of being killed by the profit motive. And so, and everybody's, yeah, like this. And he said, as far as I can see, the only answer to any of this that's going on in the world today, and you can hear, you can just sense it in the crowd. He's going to say, overthrow the, you know, and then he pauses and says, it's the second coming of Jesus Christ. And all the revolutionaries going, oh man, what is that about, you know? John records Jesus' words to his disciples as a matter of comfort. John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. Within days of saying that, well, within a day, he's crucified, rises again. He comes back after his resurrection for 40 days to hang out with the disciples, talk about his kingdom that's being built in them. And he's standing again on the Mount of Olives across from the temple and says this in Acts, the first chapter. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sights called the Ascension. And in verse 11, two angelic beings are standing with him. It says, men of Galilee, why do you stand there looking, stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. That same Jesus that said, I am the bread of life is coming back. The same Jesus who said, I am the light of the world. He's coming back. The same Jesus who said, I am the door. I am the good shepherd. Coming back. I am the resurrection and the life. Coming back. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He's coming back. I just had my fourth birthday. Spring of 1946. I'm in South India with my parents. So we're talking 73 years ago. They're driving 150 miles from the plains of South India to the tea plantations for uh, us to go to boarding school at a British boarding school. My sister's seven, I am four. And they're going to drop us off for nine months. We're not going to see them for nine months. And my dad's taking us. He's a big guy, 6'3", 240. Drops us off. We get hugs. And he says, I'm coming back. I'll see you. In nine months, be good, learn a lot, care for each other, you know, what parents say. When you're four, nine months could be three years. You know, you, you don't have any sense of that. But I'll never forget the day. I'm in my little dorm with the other little boys. It's called the bird's nest. And the word comes, Dickie, that's what they call me, Dickie, your daddy's here. I go racing out of that dorm, run down the driveway on these little short legs, come around the corner, see my dad, and I launch and he grabs me and hugs me. And then we had this game we play where I would stiffen my legs and he'd grab me by my calves and I'd be standing up and he would lift me like this. Six foot three, 
little squirt at the extension. And when my father held me up in the air, I could see forever. He came back and I could see forever. The architect of the universe knows the time. He will send his son back. And whatever sorrow, whatever sickness, whatever economic disaster, whatever disease will be no more. All will be changed. There'll be no more tears, no more war, no more sickness or death because he has done his building in us. He's building his kingdom through us one at a time and together. And that same Jesus who said there will not be one stone left on another for this temple said, what I'm going to do is make temples out of you and my spirit will live in you. And that's the way it is because I've seen it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace in this moment. With our heads bowed and no one looking, I'm not going to ask for a response except this. In our, um, in our openness to the Lord in this moment, I'm going to pray. And maybe I can pray on your behalf. And if you identify with what I'm praying in your heart and mind, pray with me. I'm going to say this, Father, here I am. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, not just once, but twice. Thank you that he's coming back. I want you to know this morning that I am open to your workmanship in me. Great architect of the universe, thank you for building a new perspective and spirit in me. Thank you for giving me a new heart, a clean mind. Thank you for washing away my sin and giving me a new place from which to build a life. At this moment, at this time, I invite you to just do that work by your spirit going forward in me. I want to be your person tomorrow even more than I am today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.